We want to read today from 1 John chapter 5, the last chapter of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, uh, take a pew Bible and turn to page 709. 1 John chapter 5. It's a blessing to have God's inerrant, inspired word. And he is speaking to us. Listen to what he says. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing to us the word of God, which is without error, 
which is a revelation from you to us to tell us what your will is and to transform our lives from the inside out. And Father, we thank you that we can be certain of that which you teach us. And so open our hearts and minds, and if those, any of those who are here who are far from God, Lord, may you open their heart and show them your greatness, your glory, and your grace. Lord, we are eager to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. The late great sportscaster John McKay tells a story illustrating the supreme confidence of the late Bear Bryant, who was the former University of Alabama football coach. John McKay, in his own words, says, We were out shooting ducks one day, and finally, after about three hours, here comes one lonely duck. The bear fires, and that duck is still flying today. But Bear watched that duck flap away, looked at me, and said, John, you are witnessing a genuine miracle. There flies a dead duck. It's kind of like the big fight last night between Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. How many watched it? You stayed up late to watch it. The hype leading up to that fight was bigger than the actual fight. Here you had two men for days, weeks, both certain that they were each going to win. My son Jack was certain McGregor was going to win, and I kept telling him, Jack, you're crazy if you think a UFC fighter is going to beat one of the all-time great boxers in a boxing match. Just isn't going to happen, and sure enough, it did not happen. Now, as we come to chapter 5 here in 1 John, let me ask you a question. What are you confident about? What are you sure of? What are you certain of in your life? Benjamin Franklin famously wrote, Nothing is certain but death and taxes. And that seems to be true now more than ever as we are living in a world filled with uncertainty. What we used to be certain of what we used to count on seems to be less and less. A recent social media study revealed that despite having an average of 150 Facebook friends, you can really only count on four of them in an emotional crisis. Dr. Scott Peck wrote in his book, The Road Less Traveled, there is only one thing in life that you can certainly count on every day, and that is uncertainty. So does that mean, then, that there's nothing that you and I can count on as believers in Jesus Christ? And the answer from John here, in John chapter 5, is no. What we're going to see in this last chapter, in this concluding chapter of the book of 1 John, is that in a world of uncertainty, there are five certainties that you can count on. We learned last Sunday that John is called this apostle of love, and for good reason. He, he wrote so much about God's love for us and how we should even have love for God and love for one another. And so he wrote a lot about love, therefore he's called the apostle of love, but he could also be called the apostle of certainty. In fact, John uses the word no over 30 times 
in this book in eight times in the closing chapter. For example, here in verse 13, he says again, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. In other words, he's certain of this. You can be certain of things here as a believer in Jesus Christ, and he identifies five of them. In other words, you can know for sure. You can live with certainty in a world of uncertainty. And so what are those? Let me unpack them for the next few minutes. Five certainties you can count on. The first one is believers are overcomers. Believers in Jesus Christ are overcomers of the world. Notice what he writes in verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Overcome comes from a Greek word that means to conquer or to have victory or conquering power. And in fact, the Nike shoe company is named after this Greek goddess of victory in which uh, this Greek goddess is named after the Greek word in which we get this word overcome. Uh, and so overcome is the idea that you have what it takes to experience success over your enemies. You have what it takes to experience victory after continued victory. But not everyone enjoys this kind of success, this kind of victory. John clearly defines who overcomes the world in verse 5 when he writes, Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, what he's saying is only believers are the ones who overcome the world. Now, in one sense, the victory has already happened. Yet there is another sense in which we are still overcoming the world. Yes, we are already victorious, but we still have to overcome. John has already given us a description of the world. In 1 John 2.16, it's characterized by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And, and now John even reminds us here in verse 19 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, Satan's got the whole world in his hands. But we can still experience victory over the world. You say, how is that? Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, John identifies. Remember what John says in verse 4. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. And what is it? It's our faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is what enables us to overcome the world by means of the new birth. And our faith in Jesus Christ, the power of the world's desires is broken. And we gain victory over them. The world is no longer my passion. In other words, God is. As overcomers, we're no longer consumed by what we don't have. The lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh and what we do have, the pride of life. That spell, is, in other words, has been broken. The shackles have come loose. The blinders have been removed from us. John says faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And now, this is John's version of what the Apostle Paul told us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, where he writes, Hey, listen, I can do all things through him, speaking of Christ, who strengthens me. And so through faith, we have the victory. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Christ has already won the victory for us in, in, on the cross. And so no wonder John, later on, he says with confidence here in verse 
18, we know that whoever is born of God does not practice sin. In other words, this doesn't have to be our continuing lifestyle because we're overcomers. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Why? Because we live under the protection of Jesus Christ. Never forget what John writes in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So you can be certain of this, John says. This is something you can count on. You've already been given the victory through Jesus Christ. Now the challenge for us is, is to live as overcomers in the power of that victory that has already been won for us by Jesus Christ. But the very first certainty that John identifies for us here is that believers in Jesus Christ are overcomers of the world. The second certainty is Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. John writes in verse 5, look at it. He says, he who overcomes the world, who is, he but, who, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now that term, as Pastor Chris was reading through this chapter for us, that term came up over and over again. Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. And that's a very important term here. Very important title for Jesus. For it informs us that Jesus is more than just a man. He is also God. His name, Jesus, identifies him as a man, and the name Son of God identifies him as God. So how do we know for sure that Jesus is the Son of God, though? I mean, how do we know this? I mean, some of Jesus' contemporaries flat out called him a liar, called him a deceiver. Others suggested Jesus was just another religious fanatic. He was a madman, perhaps even just a, a lunatic. Whatever the case may be, they didn't believe in him. Well, John here, he gives us three witnesses to prove Jesus is God. Notice what he writes again in verses 6 through 8. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, how many of you are wondering, what in the world is John talking about here? I'll admit, these verses, these particular verses, are not the easiest to understand. But let's at least try to understand the big picture of what John's trying to tell us here. And that is basically that there are three credible witnesses to prove that Jesus is God. And the first witness that John identifies is the water. But what does that refer to? Well, none other than Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River when God the Father spoke from heaven and said in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then at the same time, the Spirit descended like a dove and rested on Jesus. Now this event was significant because it was God's confirmation of His Son, and it also signified the beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth. It's the very first witness that we have. But John says there's another witness, and that is the blood. 
Now, if the water represents Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his ministry, what do you think the blood symbolizes and represents? The crucifixion or the death of Christ at the end of his earthly ministry. In John chapter 12, verse 28, God spoke to Jesus from heaven and said, I have both glorified my name and will glorify it again. And we also see that God provided significant witnesses even at the moment when Jesus was on the cross. This last Monday, we saw a phenomenon. In fact, it was dubbed the Great American Eclipse. How many took a look at it? Sure, most of you did, if not all of you. During the crucifixion, there was something like an eclipse taking place. There was a supernatural darkness that covered the earth. You had the earthquakes. You had the tearing of the temple veil. These were witnesses to Jesus being the, the Son of God. No wonder the Roman centurion cried out in Matthew 27, 54, truly this was the Son of God. And then John gives us another witness. He says there's the Spirit. And of course the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives testimony to the reality of the Gospel message. And even though we were not present at Christ's baptism, none of us were there at His crucifixion, the Holy Spirit was present, and he bears witness to Christ. I like how one pastor put it. He says it this way. The witness of the Spirit is God's witness to us, in us, and through us. Just as the arrow of a compass always points towards the north, the Spirit of God always points to Jesus. What this means is that the Holy Spirit's witness is our inner confidence that Jesus is God. And of course, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus Christ, who bears witness to this fact. John goes on to say that God's testimony then is entirely true. It's entirely trustworthy in verses 9 through 10. Look at what it says here. We receive the witness of men. But John says the witness of God is what? It's greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness of himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So what is John saying? He's saying this. Listen, we believe the testimony of men every day. And since we believe the testimony of men every day, why should we reject the testimony of God? Why would we do that? Every day we believe and trust people. In fact, I would suggest to you that you even trust and believe every day people who are strangers. Think about it. You trust the pharmacist to give you the right medicine. How many of you know who your pharmacist is? How many of you really know your pharmacist? And yeah, Audra says, I know mine. <laughs> That's because her mom's a pharmacist. All right? One example. You trust the cook in the restaurant not to poison your food. You trust the person driving in the other lane on the highway to stay in his lane and not to kill you. And if we can trust men, then why can't we trust God's testimony that Jesus is the Son of God? God's 
testimony is trustworthy. In fact, if we refuse to believe God's testimony that he has provided for us about his son, then John says we are actually calling God a what? A liar. So Jesus is the son of God. We can count on that. This is the second certainty. The third certainty that you can count on is believers have eternal life. If the key word in verses 6 through 10 is witness, then the key word in verses 11 through 13 is no. Look what he writes again in these verses here. John writes, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, God wants all believers to have a no-so salvation. He wants us to have assurance of it. He wants us to know for sure that we are saved and we possess eternal life in Jesus Christ. John does not write, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may hope, that you may guess, speculate, or wish that you have eternal life. No, he says that you may know that you have eternal life. The Bible teaches that you do not have to hope about this. That you don't have to doubt your salvation. It says you can know for sure you have eternal life when you believe in the Son of God as your Savior and Lord. So what is eternal life? We have covered this over this whole series. This is our 13th lesson in this series. Next Sunday we will conclude it with the very last verse in this chapter. John has repeatedly talked about eternal life, but let me summarize it here. Eternal life is a gift. It's not something that we can earn. And this gift is found in the person of Jesus Christ, which means eternal life is Jesus Christ and no one else. In fact, John says to have Jesus is to have what? Eternal life. And not to have Jesus means you do not have life. And so John's declaring that Jesus is eternal life, and therefore to possess Jesus is to possess eternal life. Jesus said the same thing himself. You go back to John's gospel in chapter 17, verse 3, where John says, or Jesus says, rather, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so we can summarize eternal life this way. Eternal life is God's life in you. And there's only one way to receive this gift of eternal life, and that is by faith, by placing my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for my salvation and the power of his resurrection. It's turning from my sin. It's accepting his forgiveness, and it's trusting Jesus to save me. It's receiving by faith Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And so a great question right here for us to stop and ponder and to ask ourselves is, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever received the gift of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that for sure? Or are you uncertain about that? 
Believers have eternal life. This is the third certainty that you can count on. The fourth certainty that you can count on is that God answers prayers. God answers prayers. With the assurance of eternal life comes the confidence of answered prayers. Look what John writes in verses 14 and 15. He says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now when it comes to prayer, there are two things, John says, that we can be absolutely confident about. You can bank on this, in other words. First, we can be confident that God hears our prayers as his children. Because as children of God, listen, we have privileged access to talk to our Heavenly Father any time we want. This is one of the great benefits of being a child of God. We get to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, according to Hebrews 4.16. But there's also a second truth that we can be count confident of, that God not only hears our prayers, but God also what? Answers our prayers. But there's a condition to that. And John identifies it for us. If we ask according to what? God's will. And so God doesn't promise to answer just any in every prayer we pray. But he absolutely guarantees to hear and answer any prayer that is, quote, according to God's will. Now, we may not necessarily see the answer to our prayers immediately, but we can be certain God has answered our prayers according to his will and in his timing. In fact, you go over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, and you actually, we get a glimpse of the heart of God for us as his children in his desire to want to answer our prayers. Listen to what he writes. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's the heart of our Heavenly Father for us. Now, in verses 16 and 17, John shifts a little bit. He issues now a call to intercessory prayer. In other words, what he's saying here, what he's telling us, is that our prayers should not only be offered for us, our personal needs, which is what we most of the time pray for, but he is also says we should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. John writes, look at it one more time, what he says here in verses 16 and 17. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask. And he, that is God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now immediately we see that John seems to be saying that there are two categories of sin. There's this sin not leading to death, 
And then he also identifies a sin leading to death. So what's that mean? What's he talking about here? This is interesting. This captures our attention a little bit. Well, needless to say, this is one of the most difficult verses to interpret in all of Scripture. But let me give a stab at it. Let me give you what I think John is talking about here. The crucial questions come down to this. Is John speaking of physical death or spiritual death? Or perhaps both. And if he's referring to a believer, and is he referring to a believer in the first situation and an unbeliever in the second situation, or is he referring to believers in both situations? Furthermore, what is the, quote, sin leading to death? Because John doesn't seem to identify it for us. Well, Bible scholars have struggled with answering these questions and agreeing on the meaning of this verse since John doesn't explain what he means. So let's start with what we do know from these verses here. Here's the first thing we know that we can be certain of, and that is we know who to pray for in this verse. We know who to pray for. When John says a brother... He, is, he means a believer in Jesus Christ. He says that if anyone sees a believer's sin, they should pray for him or her. And that term brother refers to both men and women. That does not mean that we should begin looking for sin in each other. All right? So don't get out your, you know, it's not like we go looking for it. Don't get out your binoculars and, all right, who's sinning now? Who can I find? But the implication when John says seeing is rather interesting here. Seeing a brother or sister sin is that you are close enough to be in their life. In other words, the implication is this. Whenever I see a brother sinning, to see them means I have to be doing life with them. We're together. We're family. We're associating. We're in community with one another. In fact, this reinforces the whole idea of being in community with one another. And so community, the, the assumption John is even making by saying seeing a brother here is that community is not something we just add to our Christian life. Oh, no, it is a necessary part of God's design for our Christian lives. And so let me just put a plug in. It ain't the only answer, but it is a great way in which our church can help facilitate some community in doing life together, and that is through our grow groups. Again, you can do community apart from it, but this is one way uh, that we try to help facilitate this. So let me encourage you, take time after the worship service, go to the info table and sign up to be part of a grow group, and, uh, which will launch here the sun, September the 10th, which is the first Sunday after Labor Day. So we know, first of all, who to pray for. That is a brother or sister in Christ. Now, we also know what to pray for. Look at this. Brothers and sisters in Christ can fall into sin, but their salvation and spiritual death are not at stake. Why is that? Because they have Christ as their atonement, and they believe in Christ for eternal life. 
And so perhaps John has in mind here a believer who sins to the point that it leads to physical death as a result of God's judgment. In, in, in other words, it leads to physical death sooner rather than later as a consequence of their sins, as God's judgment and punishment and discipline on their life. The point is, if you see a brother or sister in sin, John says what? Pray for them. Don't go talk to somebody else about them. Go talk to who first? God. And so if we see somebody here in our congregation, the idea is bring them through the throne of God. Pray on their behalf. Pray that God will give them life. Pray that they will turn from delighting in their sin to delighting in God again. Pray that they will stop believing the false promises of sin and that they will start believing the true promises of God. We are praying not only for their confession of sin, but for their repentance of sin. We are praying for God's mercy upon their lives. In fact, we are praying the words of Paul that he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. God would may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In other words, what John is saying is we have a brother and sister. At least they profess that. They claim that. And we see them sinning because we're doing life with them. We're in community with them. And John says, listen, don't gossip about them. You go to the Heavenly Father first and you pray that God will bring them to their senses. It's the same idea as the prodigal son in Luke 15. When he was in the pigsty and he finally came to his senses and said, this is stupid what I'm doing and how I'm living. Let me return to my father. And that is what we are praying here. That's the what and we know the who. We are praying for a believer's restoration. And that is always, folks, God's will. And so pray God will give life. Pray God will restore the joy of their salvation since their sins, listen to me, do not and cannot lead to spiritual death if they are true believers in Jesus Christ. So we know who to pray for. We know what to pray for. The challenge comes in knowing the sin that leads to death. John does not specifically say the one committing this sin is a brother or sister in Christ. There are some Bible scholars who believe that he or she is. Of this sin, it is interesting what John does say. He says, I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, John doesn't say it's wrong to pray for these people, but simply that it's a waste of your time to do so. It's useless. It's futile. Oh, go ahead, you can, but you're wasting your breath. Which brings us then to the obvious question. What is the sin that leads to death? Now, while we can be certain, listen to me here, while we can be very certain that God answers prayer, 
We cannot be certain what this sin is that leads to death. John simply doesn't tell us. Some Bible scholars say it is a possibility of three things. Let me give them to you quickly. That it is some very heinous sin, such as murder. I don't believe that's the case, because yet there are many murderers whom God has forgiven, right? We know murderers can come to know Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is one who comes to mind. Some say it's the same thing that Jesus called blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, which is basically attributing Jesus' powers to Satan and thereby renouncing the Holy Spirit as evil and Jesus as demonic. Others say it's a total rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If this is correct, and I think it's the best option, John is saying reject the biblical teaching about Jesus and spiritual death is your destiny. In context, I believe John is referring to false teachers here who proved to be pretenders in the faith. They, they are not believers who have fallen for lies. They are unbelieving wolves in the church. They are the Antichrist, the ones who never knew Jesus and yet pretended to be part of his family. The ones who exchanged the truth about Jesus for lies and then walked away from the faith, walked away from the church. And to pray for such people, John says, is useless. It will do no good. One Bible scholar writes this, and I quote, what he says, these false teachers manifested the spirit of the Antichrist. They separated themselves from the true church and perverted or rejected the apostolic message of redemption in Christ in deliberately rejecting the incarnate Son of God in whom eternal life is available. They committed themselves to a spiritual attitude and course of action that could only be characterized as a sin leading to death. In other words, they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ is the sin leading to death, in my opinion. Now, with all of that said, let us back up and just pause for a moment here. And let me just give a word of caution. Let's not rush to judgment as to who fits into this category. nor should we be less merciful than God himself. Aren't you glad we have a merciful Heavenly Father? Would you have known to pray for Peter and not Judas? We cannot always know who has fallen from the faith or who has fallen in his faith. Yes, John says do not pray against God's will, but also do not always assume the worst of people. John basically says, and here's the point of these verses, when in doubt, when you see somebody sinning, what should we do? Pray! Pray! That should be our first response, is to pray for them. Who would have thought that the Roman soldier who helped crucify Jesus would confess him as the Son of God? Who would have thought that Saul the persecutor would become Paul the poster boy for forgiveness? And so pray. 
Pray that God would do a work that only God can do in that person's life. And if they are true believers, bring them back to Jesus Christ. And if they are not a true believer, that God would open their eyes to Jesus Christ, open their eyes to the gospel, and that they would receive it by faith. You can count on this. God answers prayers. The final certainty we can count on, number five, is the Christian life is the real life. Not surprisingly, John ends his letter as he began it, talking about Jesus. John wants us to be certain that Jesus is real and that the Christian life is the real life. And so John writes here in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true gospel and eternal life. Now, John uses a word here three times that speaks of reality. You know what that word is? True. Three times in this one verse. True, true, true. And in this context, the primary meaning is that which is real, not fake, not false. In other words, the Christian life has substance. It has permanence and reality. The Christian life is the real life John is trying to get us to understand. In a world of duplicity and uncertainty, John offers us the truth. And what is the truth? He says it. Jesus Christ is the truth. And his gospel. John says you can be certain of this. You can count on it. Jesus is the true God. And in him we have what? What do we have in him? Everything. We have eternal life in him. That's the truth. That's the real life. Listen, in other words, what most of the world is chasing after is nothing more than a mirage. It's an illusion. It's temporary. It's not the real life. And it never will give you ultimate satisfaction and meaning in life. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I have no confidence in my confidence. I place no reliance upon my own assurance. My assurance lies in the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that whosoever believes in him has everlasting life. I do believe in him, and therefore I know I have eternal life. That really is the only thing that matters. So I leave you with this final thought. Don't be uncertain about your salvation. Are you certain about that? Are you certain you know Jesus Christ and have eternal life? Back in 1994, Northwest Airlines was doing this big promotion. And the big promotion was they were offering some unusual round-trip tickets. They were called mystery fare tickets. $59 bought a mystery fare ticket that provided a one-day trip to an undisclosed city in the United States. Now, here was the catch. Buyers didn't find out where they were going until they arrived at the airport the day of the flight. Nonetheless, the airline had plenty of takers. In fact, in Indianapolis alone, 1,500 people crowded the airline counter to buy the, quote, mystery fare tickets that were sold on a first-come, first-served basis. Not surprisingly, when buyers learned their destination, not all were happy. 
where they were going. One buyer who was hoping for New Orleans but found he had a ticket for Minneapolis walked through the airport terminal yelling, I have one ticket to the Mall of America. I'll trade it for anything. Now, mystery fare tickets may be a fun surprise for a weekend trip, but normally the last thing you want is a ticket to a mystery destination. And the one time you never, 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 never want a mystery ticket is on the day of your death. You don't want to face, uncert face eternity uncertain about whether you will go to heaven or to hell. So let me ask again. Are you certain you know Jesus and have eternal life? It's the whole reason John wrote this little book. It's the whole reason we took 13 weeks during the summer here to unpack John's truths here. That we can have assurance of our salvation. What a tragedy for us to sit here, perhaps some of you for all of these lessons, some of you for many of them, and walk away this morning still uncertain about our destiny. Listen, if that's you, I encourage you. Go to Jesus Christ. Run to the cross. Ask Jesus to save you and to forgive you and to give you eternal life. Put your faith and trust in him and leave here knowing for certain that you are Jesus and you have eternal life. Let's pray. You'll notice there's even a prayer there in, their book, in your insert, bottom of your notes there. And perhaps you're here and you, you're not quite certain about your salvation. Man, let me encourage you to utilize this prayer as a way to help you express your desire to know for sure you have eternal life. And if you're here and you're wanting, you are certain, then cry out to God with thanksgiving. Praise Him for your salvation in these next moments here as the praise team sings.